I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Sky History's Not What You Thought You Knew. I'm your host, Dr. Fern Riddell, and in this episode, we're talking about Oloda Equiano, one of the most powerful black voices of our past. And I'll be speaking to the co-founder of the Windrush Foundation and the Equiano Society, Arthur Torrington, CBE, and historian, author, and broadcaster, Professor Gretchen Gertzina. But first, we're heading back to the 1780s, and let me take you on a walk through 18th century London. We're starting in Westminster, it's here that a man named Olaouda Equiano lives with his British wife Susanna, and perhaps where we may have found him celebrating in a pub alongside 200 other African people, the Declaration of Lord Mansfield in 1772. That declaration stated that in England, a runaway slave would be safe, and their owner would be unable to seize and return them to the colonies. As we walk from Westminster to the West End, we come to the Lyceum Theatre, where we stand in the crowd, shouting and jostling while waiting to hear men and women freed from slavery speak about their lives. Further on, down the water, down to Deptford, the slave ships lie in the docks, bringing back from the colonies the money and profits made from their awful cargo, the transportation of enslaved people from Africa to the West Indies. This is London of the 1780s. This is the time of Olaouda Equiano. The end of the 18th century was a time of intense social and political revolution about what it meant to be human and who deserved to have a voice and be heard. France was about to murder its king, Mary Wollstonecraft is about to publish A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, and in England, dissenting voices are becoming a deafening roar of support for the abolition of slavery. Because for the first time, enslaved people's voices are being heard through books, court cases and pamphlets. Here in the UK, freed slaves and those born free in England formed organisations to lobby for the end of the slave trade. Among them were the Sons of Africa, who we'll be hearing about more from our experts later on, and the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade. These societies, although small, also included lawyers like Granville Sharp, who had long acted in defence of enslaved people who attempted to win their freedom and escape abusive masters. Olaouda Equiano rose to prominence at this time. Born into slavery, his early life was spent enslaved on board British Royal Navy vessels. He bought his freedom at the age of 21 in 1765, and his autobiography, The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olaouda Equiano, or Gustavus Vassa the African, published in 1789, is frequently listed among the greatest works of non-fiction of all time. 
So to learn more about Equiano, I'm very excited to bring you someone who has set up an organisation that works incredibly hard in furthering our understanding of this man as an under-celebrated hero of the abolitionist movement. I'm joined now by Arthur Torrington, CBE, and he's the director and co-founder of the Windrush Foundation. And in 1996, Arthur founded the Equiano Society to celebrate the life and work of Alada Equiano and his African contemporaries. Arthur, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us more about your role as co-founder of the Windrush Foundation and the aims of the organisation? We were actually formed in 1995, but we became a charity in 1996. Now, we design and deliver heritage projects, programs, initiatives. Uh, We're based in London, and uh, we are also concerned about promoting good race and community relations, building uh, cohesion, um, eliminating uh, discrimination of all kinds. And we place a lot of emphasis uh, on addressing issues of race and cultural diversity. And part of that must be the the preservation and acknowledgement of the history of black British peoples throughout history, not just at, at the moment of the Windrush. So why did you form the Equiano Society? Okay, well, this is very interesting because uh, of both organisations. One is focusing on Windrush, uh, 1948 and after. And uh, this one, Equiano Society, we are looking at Equiano's life in the 18th century. This African uh, young man was was uh, kidnapped at age 12, um, and uh, he was taken, he stopped in Barbados actually, which is quite interesting. <laughs> uh, and then he went to Virginia and then taken to, to Britain. But as a boy, he served in what was called the Seven Year War. That war was really to do with taking Canada. And Equiana was on the ship that went to take Canada. And on the ship, uh, we had a general, General Wolfe. So those of uh, uh, in the audience uh, in, uh, who uh, know the history of that particular uh, part um, of, of the empire, Equiana was, you know, a member of the crew uh, on the ship that went to take, um, help to take Canada. We celebrate his life. Uh, that's the main thing and his contribution, um, and especially when he wrote the book in 1789. So how did he end up in Britain? And is this a place that was very formative? It's an important part of his life, the arrival in Britain and what happens next? When, when he was taken, kidnapped, Barbados in Virginia, he was actually uh, resold to a gentleman uh, who was uh, a person on the, in the Royal Navy. Um, his name was Pascal and Pascal took him um, as a member of his team, you know, on, on a ship. Um, and, you know, Equiano spent most of his life on ships. When the war finished, this is the Seven Year War finished, uh, 17, let's say 1762, um, he was resold again to um, a merchant who was going to, to the island of Montserrat in the Caribbean. He might have been about uh, 21 in those days, um, but he was also a- able to buy and sell for himself. And he actually saved money. And he saved up to 48 pounds. Um, 40 pounds was for his manumission or freedom, which he bought. And eight pounds uh, was to buy uh, a suit, you know, to celebrate. 
And in fact, he even said he had a little bit more money, you know, to have a party. So this is someone who really uh, has started life being at the at the whim of everyone else's destiny and turns that completely into his own favour and forces through his own destiny, forces through the ability to be in charge of his own life, to, to be able to buy his own freedom from, from the situation that he was in. How do we know about his life? Did he leave a record? You mentioned a book earlier. Indeed, you know, in those days, uh, uh, most people who were very keen to record their life story would have a diary. He had um, his journal, he would record which ship he was on, what country he went to, who spoke with him, the names of people. And when you look through his book, the interesting narrative, there are lots of names. And that particular way of writing and keeping records um, was actually tested by researchers who went about, oh yes, checking to see where he went and where it was true. They went to the National Archives, they went to British Museums uh, and uh, British Library, and they checked on it. And in most cases, Equian is correct. When the book was actually, um, it was actually published, it was 560 pages. Wow. Let's say it's a, smaller than an A5, um, and it has 562 pages. And that is quite something. So it's this awful sort of case of, he had he'd learned to read, which is something someone who came from an, an enslaved past was not supposed to be able to do. He'd bought his own freedom. He was living his life and he was publishing the record of his life. And yet he still had to have a list of people that other white people could go and check that he was telling the truth of. He, he's aware of what he has to write. He's writing about his own story. Um, he also is talking to fellow Africans um, in, uh, in London, get, trying to get, this, get the story right. Like anybody who is doing, um, you know, uh, writing a, a book, they don't only just write from memories, they consult with people. And that's exactly what he did. But you see, what is most interesting about him is that at the end of the day, he had friends who were able, like Grandfather Sharp and, 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 uh, and others, who they were able to help him to move it on. And that particular book was used in Parliament, um, we don't have a direct quote um, that it was used by William Wilberforce, but at least um, we know for sure, though, that William uh, Wilberforce used the, the writings of, of African people, for example, the writings of Ignatius Sancho, another African who lived uh, in London, um, especially in Greenwich area. And, and so he was actually, this, you know, uh, Aquiana was actually very, very sure of himself. And eventually this book, um, became a bestseller in 1789. Uh, we had nine volumes uh, of the book within a number of years, within five, five or so years. Uh, 1794 was the last edition, nine editions. And even today now, according to the, um, to, to, to the, to the Guardian, um, and that was in what, 2017, that his book is among the top 100 best nonfiction books of all times. So Equiano is writing at a time that is incredibly exciting. You know, this is a time when British society is really in flux. It's, there are fundamental shifts, the change in law, the change in people's position in society and what rights they have now protected. So he's, right, he's not just writing for himself, is he? Who, who's his intended audience? Is it white British? Is it black British? Is it, or is it everyone? Is he trying to draw attention to, for everyone? That's right. You see, he, he's aware of what he has to write. He's writing about his own story. Um, he also 
is talking to fellow Africans um, in uh, in London, get trying to get this, get the story right. Like anybody who is doing um, you know uh, writing a, a book, they don't only just write from memories; they consult with people, and that's exactly what he did. And that particular book was used in Parliament. Um, we don't have a direct quote um, that it was used by William Wilberforce, but at least um, we know for sure, though, that William uh, Wilberforce used the, the writings of, of African people, for example, the writings of Ignatius Sancho, another African who lived uh, in London, um, especially in Greenwich area. And, and so, you know, uh, Aquiana was actually very, very sure of himself. And eventually this book um, became a bestseller in 1789. Uh, we had nine volumes uh, of the book within a number of years, within five, five or so years. Uh, 1794 was the last edition, nine editions. And even today now, according to the, um, to, to, to the, to the Guardian, um, and that was in what, 2017, that his book is among the top 100 best nonfiction books of all times. Can you tell me a little about how Equiano got involved with the abolitionist movement? Because whilst it might seem to us a very easy thing to understand that if you come from an enslaved background, you would then want to help free others. Is this something that was common at the time or, or is it a surprise that Equiano didn't just take his freedom and go and just be free? Why did he risk the backlash that would come with fighting and joining on the abolitionist cause? Because he had a sense of, of duty, you know, to his fellow African, and he said so, you know, um, and not only he, but there was a, you know, a group called the Sons of Africa. So they had this belief that they are reasonably well off, reasonably, and they must help their African brothers and sisters. And, and that, that's it, a kind of a, a feeling to, to bring about change. And having met with people like Granville Sharp, Thomas Clarkson, most of Granville Sharp, these were people, um, these were white English people who had a, a burden for, for freedom of others. Can you tell me a little bit about the Sons of Africa, who were a group that Equiano was part of? What was their role within wider British society? Well, their role is just like any other lobby group. Um, you know, the, the, the numbers vary to 11, 12, 13, 14. I mean, we don't know for sure, um, but a list of names are, are, are recorded in Equiano's book. But they, the purpose of, uh, of, of, of their lobbying was to ensure that in Parliament, um, you know, Wilberforce is heard, Wilberforce gets a chance to talk about um, atrocities um, you know, in the Caribbean, in, in elsewhere, and so on. And therefore, that lobby group was important. You had people like Otobo Coguano, um, his, his, uh, that, that's his um, African name. Um, his, his English name was John Stewart. And other Africans at the time, well, these other Africans were not that well known. In other words, researchers have tried to, to find out who they are, and it's not easy to do it. These were Africans who would have served in, in, in wars, uh, who had come back uh, or returned, or just brought to, uh, to Britain, to England more so. And uh, they were living in London um, like anybody else. Uh, some of them were not doing too well. Some of them were uh, you know, servants, etc. but they were free. And having met with them, I mean, they both inspired each other. He was encouraged to write the book, uh, to help the abolition movement in, 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 the, uh, in the 1780s. And I think what really made him 
um, and urged him is some of the atrocities like the Zong, the Zong massacre. Uh, the Zong massacre is, is one of the, when we look at the history of slavery, one of the moments that is an absolute atrocity. And it's the case of there was a ship full of slaves bound bound across the sea and they fall sick and the the captain felt that if he arrived and tried to sell his slaves he would he would lose profit on them and it was actually he would get more money from the insurance if he threw them all overboard and arrived without them and this is something that is incredibly shocking both to the people at the time and also to us today, this this revelation that this could happen. Because in those days, Africans weren't supposed to be human, you see, and they were they were cargo according to the law. And when they went to court, eventually, because uh, this particular captain or person in charge who owned the ship, uh, he took it to the court um, and, and and was saying that well, it's because my cargo, it's my cargo, you see, and and therefore I'm claiming the insurance, and he actually won the case. At the time, because of the insurance laws and the law of the land, um, uh, it was all about property. So most likely, uh, Lloyd's insurance um, would have been involved in, in, in getting uh, these slaves insured. Um, and therefore, the captain, well, and I suppose the owners of the ship, um, felt that they were on the safe side in the sense that um, that particular journey with um, enslaved Africans, they took that particular risk of throwing slaves overboard because they felt that they'd be able to claim the insurance. I think that's the main thing. No regard for human life, you see, because as soon as Africans left uh, Africa, um, they, were, they were property as soon as they left. And therefore, but Granville Sharp, who was the one, um, Equiana alerted Granville Sharp about the story, um, and then Grandi Sharp, you know, hired a lawyer and, and then got the lawyer to make the case. But of course, the case wasn't as strong um, because of the laws of insurance. The case was lost, but Grandville Sharp appealed. And eventually, um, the owner of the, of, of the ship did, didn't turn up to the hearing, to the next hearing. So which meant that he, he got no money. There are times when, whenever we look back through history that we find events that are as uh, that are absolutely disgusting to us and the fact that we put a lot of stock in the rule of english law and it's supposed to be something that is is very highly thought of and it actually turns out to be that there are a number of times in history where the english law has been deeply wrong in this case to view people just as property to view people just as cargo and that the fact that the insurance money was not awarded is not because of a wonderful victory of wider english society doing the right thing but simply because someone didn't turn up to a hearing why is it that we don't know equiano's name but we know the name of william wilberforce and how can we change our understanding of our history so that equiano is remembered for really being the power behind the abolition movement, because without his first-hand account, without his bravery, without his writings, I doubt that we would have seen the shift that we, we do see at this time. He was very popular at, in, in his day, that's true, but as the actual decades um, went on, um, he wasn't as well known, but he still kept a profile. He kept the profile in terms of his... Um, legacy among church groups because his daughter was um, the, the wife of a, of a minister and therefore in that sense 
um, he, um, he lived on until the 1960s, when again he was discovered in a big way, you see, uh, and you know, writers and lecturers began to speak more about him. Um, and then along the line, 1970s, 80s, there was a gentleman, a Scottish um, lecturer, uh, Paul Edwards, you know, who was involved in, 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 in bringing him back to life in the public's um, domain. Then in the 1990s, some other scholars, you know, Professor Wilfred Samuels and then Vincent Coretta. And then, you know, we started the Equiana Society and we, 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 we have tried to bring him uh, to life. Uh, and now that we have something like Black Lives Matter, I mean, people are, are talking more about him as a person who should never be forgotten. Um, and we think that we will keep him alive for, for, for a good length of time. There's also wonderful campaign groups like the Black Curriculum, which is looking to make sure that we improve our understanding of history within schools and, and within further education. What can people do in their everyday lives to, to improve their own knowledge of the world around us and how we created the society we have today? Because Equiano's story isn't one that matters only to Black British. It's part of all of our society. And if you're British today, you should know his name. That's quite true. Now, um, at the moment, Equiano um, is, is back in the curriculum um, at Key Stage 4, which means he could be studied uh, at GCSE level. He's there, you see. Um, there are textbooks now written um, about him and about people like Ignatius Sancho and others. And I think that's the way where both parents, teachers, and children can keep alive those stories and, and show how the Black presence in, in Britain ha has actually you know, um, enlivened and, and enriched culturally and otherwise, and um, making this society in which we can all live you know, happily. Only £40 for the cost of a human life. It doesn't seem real, does it? How do we wrap our heads around a time that seems so alien now? One where human life was seen as property, mere economics, and dealt without care or respect. Arthur touches on the Zong Massacre, and it's hard to describe just how much of an impact this event had on British society. It was a revelation of undeniable inhumanity in the slave trade. And for those of you who don't know, let's dig into that history a little more. Originally a Dutch slave ship, the Zong had been captured by the British Royal Navy in 1781 and sold to a small syndicate of Liverpool merchants. Edward Wilson, George Case, James Aspinall and three members of the Gregson family, William, previously Mayor of Liverpool, and his brothers James and John. They also brought the ship's entire cargo, 244 enslaved Africans. A few months later, the Zong sailed from Accra in Ghana, now carrying 442 slaves, twice as many as it could safely transport. The journey to Jamaica, where the slaves were to be sold, was rife with sickness and malnutrition among crew and captain, and through utter inadequacy, they missed their port to restock water and were, on many occasions, miles off course. They overshot Jamaica by over 300 nautical miles, only realising when they had little under three to four days drinking water left. Jamaica now was nearly two weeks sailing. And here's where the story becomes even crueler and even darker. And it's one I didn't fully understand until we made this podcast. You heard Arthur and I discussing the fact that slaves were thrown overboard so that the owners would be able to claim on the ship's insurance for lost cargo. Well, there's a reason for that. If the slaves died a natural death, or died on arrival at Jamaica, the owners would be unable to claim that loss on their insurance. But if the captain of the ship, 
chose to jettison part of his cargo at sea, and let's be clear, that means throwing living people overboard, an insurance claim could be made under the terms of the general average, an understanding that in British law, that a captain had purposefully sacrificed some of his cargo to save the rest. And this is what the Zong did. On the 24th of November, the crew voted unanimously to throw 54 women and children from the cabin windows. This was carried on over the following days, and by the time the ship finally arrived in Jamaica, 142 people had been thrown to the sea and left to drown. Although the crew and owners claimed to their insurers that this was done because they were running out of water, the ship's own records show that after the first day of this horrific sacrifice, it had rained and rained, and they had collected enough water to get them back to Jamaica. But still they continued to throw people overboard. This is an incredibly dark, sordid and grotesque event in our history. And when news of the massacre filtered out into the popular consciousness of Britain, it wasn't because of what had happened, but because the insurers had refused to pay, so the Liverpool owners had taken them to court, determined to get their money. It was from this court case in 1783 that Aluda Equiano learned of the events on board the Zong, and brought them to the attention of Granville Sharp, who began to form a legal case to prosecute the crew for murder. He was ultimately unsuccessful, but as the years went by, knowledge of the horrors of the Zong massacre grew in the British popular consciousness, and this is because of the tireless work of Equiano and the Sons of Africa. This group, who also included Ignatius Sancho, lobbied for the abolition of slavery, drawing on their own experiences, and argued for greater rights of black people in Britain. They wrote to newspapers, gave lectures, and petitioned Parliament for the education of the black poor in London. So to reveal more about the lasting legacy of Aluda Equiano and the Sons of Africa, next up I have the author of a series of excellent books on the subject of Black Britain and the host of BBC Radio 4's Britain's Black Past. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Gretchen, thank you so much for joining me today. What can you tell us about Britain's Black Past, the book you've recently edited? It was actually an outgrowth of some other books I had done. I had done a book called Black England that was published in America as Black London. Um, which finally went out of print, but I gave it to the Dartmouth College Library in America. So it's a free download for anybody. And people kept reading that. And I thought, well, there's more to it since I've published that book. So um, the producer for the program got in touch with me. And she said, I think we should start looking at all sorts of Black people, mostly in the 18th, early 19th century, who lived in Britain. And how do we want to think about them and where they were? So we did a very whirlwind tour. I think in one month, we traveled from, oh, I'd say Morecambe Bay, Glasgow. I went to Glasgow in a day and back by train from London. (laughs) (laughs) We went to Bristol. We went to, uh, obviously, sites in London. So there were a lot of places we wanted to go and think about not just what we knew about a lot of Black people being centered in the metropolitan area, but also where might they have been in addition? How, how can we think about repopulating the view of Britain? So the chapters are actually not written by me. I did one on Dido Elizabeth Bell, um, the woman whose story was made into the film Bell, with some liberties. Um, and and we had a number of other scholars, people who had contributed, had been interviewed for us with us for the radio program, but who had done really cutting edge research. And I learned so much. So in that book, you hear about people like the um, mixed race man in Wales, who was the heir to his father. He was illegitimate, and, but he became the heir and he actually owned slaves himself. Uh, which was really complicating for me, trying to think that one through. How did I feel about that? How did you feel about that? The, the woman who wrote the chapter had been doing research on him for years and years, and she lived near him, um, and she was a curator at, at a museum, and so she knew much more than I did, and she defended him, I think, quite well. But when I thought about it, I, I, I could not get both sides of my brain around that, that the only people he ever freed because he had plantations in the West Indies were his mother, who, and she in turn owned enslaved people herself. Um, And the money he had throughout his lifetime came from those plantations. Now he didn't run them and I'm not clear that he knew everything that went on 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 the plantations, but it was very, it, it was very complicating because I didn't, want to like him you know i mean that one fact made it difficult on the other hand he became a sheriff he voted he was well known and he managed to have a kind of life that other people only dreamed of so it was a complicated story do you think these are questions we are going to have to start asking 
in the research of black history and black British history, because in a previous episode uh, of this series, we were looking at the story of Alan Noel Mims, who was an amazing black soldier in World War One, whose family came back to the UK in the middle of the 19th century. And when we traced his family history, all the way back to the early 1800s, his great grandmother was a freed slave called Rosita. And she had owned slaves herself. And we were asking our other contributors, you know, this is something we've never had to really talk about or think about because there's not, those aren't the stories we're telling. And, and how, is, how do we approach these stories? How do we talk about these histories? I think everything we've been learning tends to complicate the picture. We like things to be simplistic. We like mm. them to be straightforward. Enslaved people were victims. Enslavers were terrible. Um, but what if the people who were enslaving people were themselves um, black? And uh, so it's complicated and I, I like that. I think what we've done is try to make everything so clear and simple. I, I often tell this story that um, when I went into a bookshop in London many years ago, I was looking for a wonderful book called Staying Power by Peter Fryer. He'd done an exhaustive, wonderful magisterial study of the history, history of black people in Britain. And I went out to, and I won't even say the name of this shop, but everybody knows it. <laughs> and, and I went up to a woman, I said, I'm trying to find this book. Where, where, what shelf would it be in sociology? Would it be in history? And she just looked at me and she said, Madam, there were no black people in England before 1948. Oh, God. And I said, well, yes, there were. And because she was, of course, thinking of the Windrush, and that's when all black people arrived. And I said, well, you know, they, they started arriving, well, with the Romans, but then also in the 1550s, students were here from Africa. And, I, and I, she just said, looked at me and she said, but in no numbers. And that's when I realized that I that people really didn't know and they didn't want to know. There was a part of it that made it seem that if you were black, you had to be a recent arrival. You had to be from one of two places. You had to be from Africa or the West Indies, but you couldn't have been in a family, say in Liverpool that had been there for 300 years through the generations. The other thing people didn't know is that there were so many mixed marriages and that was a complicating thing too. I know people have been wanting to write about Equiano and the first thing they do in any film or uh, version I've seen of it, they want to show the picture of him kissing his white wife as though it is some kind of, um, you know, transgression. And I wanted to say, wait a minute, <laughs> these people were there. That's why, and they married mm -hmm. other people. Anyway, so that's my, that's my I, I get off my hobby horse, but it is important, I think, that people know that this is a joint history. It's not just the history of black people in Britain, it's the history of Britain itself. And that's such an important point. And I think one of the, one of the difficulties whenever we talk to experts like yourself or anyone who has an interest in this and a knowledge of black British history, there is a moment where you almost downplay it. And actually, these histories need to be shouted from the rooftops because they are British history. It's that simple. There shouldn't be this divide. It shouldn't be done in sections. It's everyone. If you're interested in the history of Britain in the 1800s or the 1500s or the Roman period, black British history is part of that. Britishness is not monolithic. And I think that's the thing people forget. 
that if you start looking at DNA, you see all sorts of things popping up and that you didn't expect to find. Years ago, I did a television uh, four-part series um, on British television. I think it was on Channel 4. And they interviewed some women in Bristol because they had done an epidemiological study. And they found that a lot of people, white people, living in, I think it was Bristol, but it might have been Brighton. Maybe it was Brighton. Anyway, um, and they found all of this uh, evidence of um, sickle cell trait, which is, comes from African people. But these were all white people, and some of them were just shocked. They didn't want to know. But I remember really clearly a woman who was probably in her 60s and her daughter just had this amazed look on their face. And they said, oh, that explains great-grandfather from Jamaica. We just assumed he was a plantation <laughs> owner. <laughs> wow. I think that's the thing that I, I really love about these histories is that it makes people reconsider their own family lines and their own family histories and understand that they are they are not one-dimensional they are not that there are no certainties that you have to ask questions but let's go back to the man you spoke of a little bit earlier Equiano himself can you tell me a little bit what life was like for men like him in Britain before the abolition of slavery he was a bit of an anomaly I have to say he he traveled the entire world he went from Antarctica to South America to America to Britain, name was changed several times. That would have been the same for all the other black people. Their names were generally changed, not always. But he was very literate and he managed to become well known in England at his time. But I like to put him in front of you and others because he's like the tip of the iceberg. If he can be someone who has managed to have this life what about all the others like Ignatius Sancho or Otaba Kuguano or the others who could not read or write, but were living lives, you know, amongst everyone else in the port cities, but also spread around. So his life would have been a bit different than others because he did have his freedom and he earned it himself. He bought himself out. He was very entrepreneurial and he was baptized in Westminster at St. Margaret's Church and he went to school. So he may have been a bit different from some of the others. There was a wonderful um, line from Ignatius Sancho, who also lived and had a shop in Westminster. And he said that he had gone with his family to um, one of the pleasure gardens, seen a wonderful play, how nice it was. They came home and he said, we weren't much abused. So that gives you the sense that you could participate and you could live there, but there were going to be people on the street who might yell at you. There might be people who would capture you and put you back on a ship to be enslaved again. There were people who would take your cases to court and so who, who, who were real champions of the enslaved people in order to free them. So he seems to be the one that we, we want to we want to use him as the poster boy, you know, for young men who were living in Britain. But I think the people who were under him, the unseen and the unknown, they're really quite important. And he was the champion of all of these people. When we talk about Equiano, we often mention the Sons of Africa, which is the incredibly important organization he was part of. Can you tell me a little bit about it and its aims? 
first of all, it was a larger group. I was looking it up earlier today in my own work, and I think I found 12 names at least, that who, men who were part of that, um, names I'd forgotten over the years, like George Wallace or William Stevens or Jasper Uri and others. We give credit for abolition, British abolition, to a few people. We think about Wilberforce. We think about... Um, Thomas Clarkson, um, we, we, some people know about Granville Sharp, who was absolutely crucial to the movement. But we forget that they were actually black people who were involved in their own fight for abolition and that they were public. So they were organized, they had meetings, they talked to each other, they wrote letters all over the place. There were letters I found in the Morning Chronicle and the Gentleman's Magazine. They, Equiano wrote his memoir and it went into nine editions by the time he died and he was sort of on perpetual book tour you know he was always selling his book everywhere um and and so we have to remember that it's not just a story of the white saviors they worked hand in glove some of them but they were on their own they were writing to the rich and famous they were writing to the aristocracy and the king um, they didn't always get answers, but they were relentless in trying to make abolition happen and to help propose ways to end the trade. So for people who don't know much about society at this time, if you were someone who wanted to change the world or you had, you had a problem and it needed to be changed in law or changed politically, how did you go about doing that? Well, that's a huge question, isn't it? <laughs> Well, you know, people did write letters. And if you were literate, you did write letters to the magazines and the newspapers. And you often had a pseudonym. Uh, I think Inesha Sancho used the name Africanus, a number of letters that he wrote. They weren't necessarily putting their own names out there, but they were doing that. They also had to make common cause with others. They, they worked with white people to try to make sure that the right people were hearing this story and that it was being publicized by others than just them. People who had a voice and had some, some standing, political or social, um, although some were very unknown and they were just relentless fighters for the cause. So I think it's similar today, it was that the social media of their day. It is an understanding that you could have a voice you could find power if you used a pseudonym, if you wrote, if you were literate in some way or you knew someone who could write a letter on your behalf. There was a way to, to be heard. And people might not think that about 18th century society or 19th century society because they think it's very heavily class structured. It didn't give a lot of people many rights. But there is ways to fight the system, isn't there? There were. And I, I think you're right. And I, and I, as you were saying that, you said something that struck me because... When we think back to enslaved people, whether in Britain or the Americas, we think of them as being silent. We see black people in paintings. We see them as servants. We see them alongside the rich and famous in portraits, but we never hear a voice. So the sons of Africa are really important because they gave voice to, to their thoughts, to their political aims. They would meet in, in um, I don't want to say pubs, but coffee houses. They would have meetings um, sometimes in the basement of the house where someone who may have employed them worked while they were off having a dinner party. These men could meet in the downstairs in the kitchen 
Um, so it was an important thing to remember that they were, they were not silent participants. They were actually activists. Throughout your career, choosing this field and knowing it is one that needs to be heard and needs to draw students to it to further that research. Are you seeing a change in the students who are coming to you? Are we seeing more students realising that this is a field they need to grab with both hands and, and really be interested in? What's interesting is the way that the George Floyd killing and the Black Lives Matter movement has been an international movement. And I think people are very aware. There are groups working on this now. There's a group that's putting together a Black British curriculum that they're hoping to put into schools. And we've been in conversation about that. There are other groups. I'm part of one that is looking at Black uh, representation in British portraiture and painting. And they're trying to get a database of all of those and try to identify who the people are so that they can then, you know, hopefully there will be an exhibition or something, but there may well be ways that that can go into the schools as well. It should be at some point that it's regularized, that everybody says, well, yes, we know that. We don't know enough about it, but we know it happened and we know it existed. At this point, I think we're at the point where, you know, I get emails all the time of people saying, I had no idea. And these are both black and white people, you know, they all say, but no one ever taught me. Well, no one really ever taught me either. I mean, I started as a biographer. You know, I, my first book was Dora Carrington of the Bloomsbury Group. And, and then I kind of shifted to this other field. And um, the, the interesting thing is that you, you seem to have to have a natural interest in this in order to find out what's out there. So one of the biggest things that's happened recently that I, I really like is that genealogists are getting into the picture they're finding things in their own family histories. I can't tell you how many people I've asked, well, how did you come to be interested in this? And they said, well, I think I may have some black heritage. I didn't know. And I think at least three or four people have said that to me at various, you know, just even at parties. And I, <laughs> and, and, um, but I remember also when I first published Black England, I was on a radio program and the host told me, the presenter told me that his nephew, who was black, saw the book on his desk and ran off with it. And he said, I didn't know we were here. Mm. And I want everyone to know that we were there, but also that it's not just a story that, that's about black history. It's not just confined to the people who feel that it's their history not being told because it's everyone's history. And I think, you know, others like David Olasoga and all, all these others who, who are bringing this to light um, are doing a really good job of just keeping it in front of people to say, we can't just be so certain. We can't be sure. We just really don't know. And we can find all these people. But as I said earlier, it's the tip of the iceberg. So how do we let students know? We get it into the schools. We get it into the museums. We get it into the library exhibitions. Um, we get it into the small towns where some people actually lived. Um, and we just keep it in front of people. And it's not just this group of people. It's just thinking about England being multicultural for centuries. The Slavery Act of 1807 outlawed this grotesque trade in human life on the high seas. And in 1833, the Slavery Abolition Act was passed, which abolished slavery in most of the British Empire. We know the famous name of William Wilberforce, but we must also now know the name of Aluda Equiano too. As Gretchen says, 
Get this history out there. Get it in front of people. It belongs to all of us. Equiano died in 1797, long before slavery began its slow eradication from this country's empire. And meanwhile, every powerful city here still reaped the benefits of money and prosperity from that trade. That Liverpool mayor that I told you about, who wanted his money from the Zong, he invested in transportations that saw over 58,000 Africans forced into slavery. His profits came from each one of their lives. And so to give those nameless, lost people a legacy, we need to make sure we know the name of Aluda Equiano, and that his words live on. And so it's only fitting that we end this episode with a few lines from Equiano himself. Is not the slave trade entirely at war with the heart of man? Surely this traffic cannot be good, which spreads like a pestilence and taint what it touches. Tortures, murder and every other imaginable barbarity and iniquity are practised upon the poor slaves with impunity. O ye nominal Christians, might not an African ask you, learned you this from your God? And that's it for our penultimate episode of this series of Not What You Thought You Knew, sponsored by Ancestry. Just one more to go. If you're wanting more episodes, please head to your podcast app to leave a rating and jump on social media to use the hashtag NotWhatYouThought to demand more. Share with us who you think we should be looking at in the next series. I want to delve into the worlds of medieval Ireland and its powerful women, the mad inventors of the Victorian era, and the attack on Tulsa's Black Wall Street in 1921. Let us know your suggestions too. For more information on this episode and on all our other episodes of Not What You Thought You Knew, head to skyhistory.co.uk. And finally, a big thank you to my guests, Arthur Torrington, CBE, and Professor Gretchen Gertzema. This episode of Not What You Thought You Knew was hosted by me, Dr Fern Riddell, produced by Kim Sargent and Pete Ross, with research by Mary Nze, and our series producer is Sam Pearson.